Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2. We'll, we'll read the text in a minute. The height of the Reformation conflict with Rome, Erasmus, who was a great uh, humanistic scholar, was employed by the Roman Catholic Church to go head-to-head with Martin Luther. And he chose to do this in his diatribe on the free will. And instead of judging Luther on the papacy, on justification, on indulgences, on purgatory, the sacraments, church history, he focused on the subject of the will, the, the heart, the, the inner man. And specifically, the, uh, he challenged Luther's position on sin's impact upon the will. And you understand for a humanist, for an enlightenist, the, 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 the subject matter of the will is very important. And this brought immediate and abundant joy to Martin Luther. And he said to Erasmus, you and you alone have seen the hinge upon which all turns and you have aimed for the vital spot. And so I, we, we have to ask some questions. Does the human will have the capacity to believe and obey the gospel by itself? And if God does have to help, how much? And what does man need? What, what does that help look like? Does he just need a little bit of education? Does he need uh, uh, therapy? Does he need the right amount of grace, just the right amount of grace to adjust his spiritual values and sensitivities? How we answer this question is really important because how we answer determines, is biblical Christianity a religion of grace or of works? Is it a religion of grace or merit? What I want to convince you today out from a passage of Scripture is the Reformed principle, the slogan, the credo, sola gratia, saved by grace alone. And what the principle says is that the Christian's salvation... Everything that you have as a believer, absolutely everything is given to you, not because of an iota of what you contributed, not because of anything you were, but solely because of God's grace alone. So I invite you out of respect for the word, if you can stand as we read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So then in the ages to come, he might show 
the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You may be seated. We see in this text that Paul examines our salvation looking at the past, and he identifies the problem that required, that absolutely required God's grace in verses 1 to 3. And then he looks at our salvation in the present, looking at that provision of God's grace, verses 4 to 6. And then looking at the future, he sees the purpose of God's grace revealed in verses 7 through 10. So let's look at the past. What was the problem that required grace? What was the issue that necessitated divine, unmerited grace? Well, we see in verse 1, hits a square between the eyes, you were dead. Isn't that a little shocking? Isn't that sobering? You were dead. And as shocking, as sobering as it is, it's true. You weren't sick. You weren't confused. You weren't weak. You weren't out of harmony with the universe. You were dead. Oh, I wasn't dead. Yes, you were. Your bioscience may have registered something on the chart, but the Bible, putting on its stethoscope and examining you, did some tests, and the tests came back, and you were dead. Spiritually dead, your soul, your heart, your will, your mind, your inner man or inner woman was dead. You, we all, me, had no spiritual capacity to feel spiritual things. We could not discern spiritual things. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, you have to be born again. You have to be born from above to even see the kingdom of God. That was us. That was you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man, the, the unregenerate man, does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot. That is a word of capability, of ability. He cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned and he is not a spiritual being. That was you. And that was me. Even more critically, not only could we not see spiritual things, not only could we not discern spiritual things, we completely, utterly lacked and were devoid of the capacity to love spiritual things romans 8 6 to 8 and there's going to be a lot of romans in today's sermon romans 8 6 to 8 says that the mind set on the flesh is death because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward god it doesn't subject itself to the law of god it is not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot not will not, they cannot please God. Christian, if you're a Christian today, understand you were 
dead in your trespasses and sins. Now let's look at those two words. If you've been around church for a while, these are familiar words. Trespass is an offense to step over a boundary, to, to go where you're not supposed to go, to do what you're not supposed to do. And sin, it's a hunting word that technically means to miss the mark. It really means to depart from God's standard of uprightness, of goodness, of truth, and of glory. It is to fall short of his glory. That's sin. And there have been studies trying to show, well, what is sin and what's a trespass and what's an iniquity? And they are to use together here they're really as synonyms and they together denote the sphere of our deadness before god chose to act in you you were dead and that was made evident by your lifestyle of transgression by your lifestyle of departing and being far from the creator's standard of what is right and good and true, and glorious. Well, you may ask, well, when, when did I die? You were born dead. Spiritually, we were all spiritual stillborns. Well, how did that happen? Scripture says you were born in Adam. Romans 5.12, commenting on the creation account in Genesis 3, Paul says that when our Stock when when our root himself transgressed and sinned in sinned in his disobedience that that death and sin would transfer to us he says and I and I'm only reading parts of five Romans five twelve to twenty one and I'll I'll bring in the other side of this argument in a few minutes but he says through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned that's verse 12 verse 15 by the transgression of the one many died verse 16 judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation verse 17 by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one verse 18 through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all Men, 19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Verse 21, sin reigned in death. It's a pretty serious uh, position that Paul puts forth. You were dead, and sin reigned in you. So in addition to being dead, you were also enslaved. Looking at back at Ephesians 2, 2 to the first part of three, Paul reveals who your masters, who the dominating influence uh, were in our deadness. He says that we walked formerly according to the course of this world. Did you know that you walked in your deadness? Walking is, is, is a, it's a, a metaphor to describe your way of life, your, your pattern, your characteristic, what you do. Well, what was your pattern? What was your way of life? You were enslaved with whatever the world was throwing at you. This is the spirit of the age. Germans have a word called zeitgeist. It's the status quo. It's whatever the in thing is. It's the norm. It's the standard. It's what's expected. That's what you do. This is 
This is the system. This is the game that we all have to play to fit in so that we don't rock the boat. It's listening to whoever's on top right now in this in this uh, uh, big geopolitical game of king of the hill. And you're, you and I are doing your best to follow the norms and standards that are being imposed on you. This is adopting the world's values, the world's definitions, the world's trends, not because... You've actually stopped to think things through, not because you're doing the rational, the logical thing, but because you are told to believe this way. You are told to act this way. You are told to affirm these things. And if you don't shut up and go with the flow, you're labeled. What are you labeled nowadays if you, if you uh, show any hesitation to affirm the course of this world. You're, called, you're labeled a troublemaker, a, an outsider, a dissident, a holier-than-thou, ignorant, intolerant, bigot, hateful. So, friend, if just get with the program. Go with the flow. Everyone else is doing it, right? Rather than walk according to God's parameters, the dead man walks according to the world's parameters. He's enslaved but to the world. And who else were we enslaved to? Paul, Paul adds, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Well, who's that? Satan. The devil. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for it's, he is the God, little g, of this world who's, who blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel. Here, Paul calls him the archon, the, the prince, the ruler, the chief. He's the king of the hill within this, within this little sphere and domain that he has. Behind the death walk of the dead, behind the, the enslaving marks of the dead can be found the merciless machinations of Satan's demons found in all the false religions of the world. Did you know that in 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul says that things that the Gentiles, that the nations, that those outside of the knowledge of God, the things they offer in their religious systems, they offer to demons. Before God's grace came upon you, and me, we were not just at the mercy of a godless world, but we were enslaved by a devil who hates us because we bear God's image. And the devil will do anything he can to disgrace, to, to mar and to tarnish that image. And he does that by perpetuating the rebellion that he started in the garden. And the more that he can get God's bearer uh, image bearers to sin and to rebel in his mind. He thinks he, he's gaining more and more of a victory that he can chalk up against God. And that's why Paul says he is working. He is present tense. He is currently working in the sons of disobedience. Disobedient to who? Disobedient to God. When you were dead, you were enslaved to the world, the devil, and also your own lusts. It says, among 
them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we looked at this some months back in 1 Peter 2.11. It may have been closer to a year ago where Peter urges Christians to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now that's, that's what the Christian can do. That's what the regenerate man can do. But the dead man can't. He can't because his will is dead and he can't change his nature. He can't change his proclivity. He can't change his niche to sin. So his sin dominates him in an utter, in a merciless slavery. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. The dead man lives in, this, in, in his enslaving, lustful sin, and it is his master because he constantly obeys it. Martin Luther realized he could not appropriate obedience. He could not appropriate and produce and, uh, and yield the righteousness of God in his life no matter how hard he tried. Because even though he tried and tried and tried, and he was an excellent monk by the standards of his day, he sinned and sinned and sinned. He was to his core a dead sinner in trespasses and sins. He wasn't a sinner because he sinned. He sinned because he was a sinner. The root yields, produces, causes the fruit. The fruit does not cause the root. If, you, if, I, if I plant a, a, a seed for a tree and I put it in the ground and it sprouts an apple tree, long before it produces the apples, long before it bears the fruit of what it is, it is what it is. Does that make sense? You sin because you are a sinner. The dead man doesn't dabble or play in sin. He doesn't kind of fall short of God's glory. He excels in sin. He lives in his Lusts, his enslaving lusts and his sins and his transgressions and trespasses and offenses, they define him. Because of what he is, made evident by what he does, we see the prognosis of the dead man, and that is he is doomed. Look at how verse 3 concludes. And we were to, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This, does, this doesn't mean children who produce wrath. This is children or people who are the object of wrath. The dead man, all spiritually dead men and women, every person who is, who, is, who is outside the salvation of Christ and is not in him, because of his sinful nature, he is presently, currently, right now. If he's not in Christ, he is the object of God's wrath. Jesus says in John 3.36, it's a part of John chapter 3 that most people tend not to get to. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. 
but the wrath of God abides on him. If you do not have belief and obedience toward the Son, and don't separate the two, if you don't have belief in the Son, if you don't obey the Son, God's wrath presently, right now, abides on, is present, is on you. And if you're a Christian, this is your past. If you're not a Christian, this is your present. And I hope that you could understand the sobriety in which any minister or evangelist might say that to someone they pass by on the street or, or see. If you are trying to get right with God by doing stuff, by coming to church, by, by giving money in the offering, by being a moral person, by keeping the Ten Commandments, by memorizing Bible verses, going to Awana. If you're trying to get right with God by doing stuff and you haven't rested in the finished, in the completed work of God's Son, you are still dead. Let that sink in. You're not mostly dead. You're fully dead. There's not one part of you that hasn't been touched and permeated by death. This is what theologians mean when they talk about the doctrine of total depravity. Everything about you, your nature, your walk, your thoughts, your desires, your manner and pattern of life, your faculties, everything about you is corrupted and tainted and perverted. And it doesn't mean that you are, uh, that, that you are all as evil as, say, Hitler or whoever, the, whoever the, 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 the stereotype is these days. It doesn't mean that you are as evil as you could be, but it means every part of you, every faculty of, of you is touched by sin, and there's not a part that's not touched. There's not a clean part in with, within you. Everything about us in some way is bent and inclined towards sin. Sin has become our niche. It's what we do. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, uh, starting at verse 10, and quoting from a tapestry of Old Testament texts, there is none righteous. There's not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. And Luther says, I am astounded that when Paul when Paul uses these comprehensive terms, he says all, none, not even one, never, without. I am amazed at how it has happened that in the face of these words, others that are contrary, even contradictory to them, should have won acceptance. What does that mean? That means that when Paul says none are righteous, how can anyone walk away thinking I'm basically When Paul says, no one seeks after God, how can anyone think they will find God? We are naturally God rejectors. We reject Him, we reject His Word. And as Romans 1 gives us this, uh, uh, this archetype, we, we all say, I will find God on my own. And when that happens, we brush aside the true God who is revealed for Himself, and we fashion a God that we like, that that resembles our values and, and likes what we like but hates what we hate. And we settle on this fabricated deity of our, own, of our very own. And you know what Scripture calls a fabricated deity? 
an idol. And the one true God doesn't take kindly to idols. There's nothing good in us, no righteousness in us. Because we do not seek God, I hope you can conclude that left to ourselves, his wrath, unless God did something, his wrath abided on you and you were damned. I hope you can conclude that. With all the, even with all the strength you could muster, with all the wisdom you can glean from all the philosophers and sages of the ages, you were dead. With, with all the merit, with all the works you could, you could pull yourself up by your bootstrap and go out and do, with all the works and all the religiosity that you could bring, you put your best foot forward and you go to church every day and you memorize the whole Bible and you give 99% of your income into the offering and, and you rescue little kittens out of trees and help little ladies cross the street and you're a good neighbor, does absolutely nothing to change, you, to change the fact that spiritually you're a grimy, moldy, pus-ridden, disease-filled corpse awaiting the incineration of God's Righteous wrath. Religion does nothing to change that. But God gave you grace. Let, let that sit in. Let, just stew in that a little bit. S- smell it. Savor it. Delight in it. But God gave you grace. That that was your past. If you're a Christian, that was your past. Let's look at the Christian's present reality. The provision of grace. Verses 4 to 6. Now, before we get to the main thought here, Paul, he, he primes the pump and he makes something absolutely abundantly clear. That the salvation that God gave is because of God and not because of man. And there are three observations in 4 to 5, the beginning of 5, that makes this clear. That the grace that came to you, came to you not because of you, but because of God. And the first is is because it is given on account of God's mercy. Mercy is compassion. It is pity. It is a whole... And it's something that you cannot demand. Mercy falls on the whim of the giver to give it. Mercy is a holy and righteous God looking down on pitiful, wicked, dead men enslaved by the world, the devil, and their own self-destroying lusts. And he reaches down and he plucks us up, plucks us up and he sets us free. And he didn't have to do any of it. He didn't have to do anything. But he did. And what's great about God's mercy... He's rich in it. Isn't that good news? He is rich. He has an abundance. His his bank account is stocked full of mercy. Secondly, we see that God's salvation came to us because of his great love with which he loved us. And this word love is agape. It is the selfless, unconditional 
love. It is a love that doesn't, it doesn't love because of what, of what you get back. You love because you are choosing, you are initiating to love. God didn't love us because of who, we were so lovable. He didn't love us because of who we were and what we did. He loved us because of who he is. And what does First John say that God is? Love. And he has a great love. Third, God's salvation came to us when? What was our condition? Even when we were dead in our transgressions. When was the last time that a dead man could do anything to better his position or situation? Dead men can't do anything to change or improve or enhance their deadness. Dead men don't bring anything to the table. So those are three considerations that make it abundantly clear. What God is doing is grace. It is unmerited. It is, it is him doing it because he chooses to do it. But God made us alive with Christ. That's the first, the first provision of grace. He made us alive with Christ. He gave you life. It, it, Think about that. He gave you something absolutely outside of yourself, something that is completely and in totality beyond your nature to grasp, beyond your nature to appropriate for yourself. A dead man cannot make themselves alive. God giving the sinner life is exactly what he needed because he was dead. If he was sick, God would have given him medicine. If, if, he, if, the, if the old man was confused, God would have given him some counseling or some therapy. If, if he had some, uh, some, some, some disability or, or, or a challenge, then, then physical therapy. Some, but he was dead. He needed life. The remedy perfectly matches the condition. The length people will go to to obtain what they, what they think they need to fix their lives. And yet, what they need most is the imbued life of Christ. And he gives it to any and to all who come to him in faith. That's how you appropriate it. Remember, we looked at First uh, Peter 2.4, even, even, even before 2.11 where Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You come to Christ, the, the precious cornerstone of God that is imbued with divine life, that God has deemed elect and precious, and you are made alive in him. And you're built upon him as this eternal edifice, which is the church, which, which is the people of God. And though the world and system doesn't see it, God is going to reveal the glorious nature and the absolute beauty of the church that he is building in the days to come. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 3, after he, says, after he reminds the, the Colossian church you've died, he says, you have been raised with Christ. You've died and right now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Oh, that's good news. 
Why will we be revealed with him in glory? Because his life is in you and your life is in him and you are united to him. And he will one day return to, to collect every single person who shares in his life. John 6.39, one of my favorite passages right now. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me that, all, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. Those words are so comforting to the Christian. Do you never want to be lost again? Then be in Christ. Because he has sworn, he has promised, he will, never, he will not lose anything. He will lose nothing of, the, of, of who the Father has given him. In all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. You were dead, but God made you alive, and it's all by grace. It's all by sweet, undeserved grace. Unmerited, unearned, gifted grace. Not only did he make us alive, but he raised us up with Christ. Look at verse 6. He raised us up with him. This is foreshadowing the resurrection that every Christian will have on the last day. But Paul is also speaking presently right now. He's speaking about present realities. And that reality is that we are not merely made alive as if that wasn't enough. But we are exalted to a great and a privileged position in Christ. If you go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse uh, 3, he says, We are blessed with every spiritual Blessing in Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. And later he says in, in, in the same chapter that we are redeemed, we are purchased, we are made the, the, the personal possession of Christ. And then he says that we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. He says we have been given the pledge of the Holy Spirit in Christ, that we are the recipients of his surpassing great power. And to sum it up, he says that we as the church, all Christians throughout the age, around the globe, that we as the church are the corporate body of the federal head of the cosmos. Privileged position, huh? Doesn't that put the, the raised man who used to be dead and has been made alive and is now raised, doesn't that put him in a pretty good spot? I would say so. You were dead and enslaved, but God gave you life, he raised you with Christ, and he also seated us with him in the heavenly places. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Did God, to to what extent did God raise us? To what extent did God raise you? Did he raise you back to this kind of neutral place where Adam was, where he, he, could, he could obey, but he could sin? No, you have been raised much higher than that. Much, much higher than fathomly possible because positionally we are lifted up to sit alongside our Lord. You are lifted up and sat beside your Savior. Talk about the pauper becoming a prince. God's grace took you as a child of wrath and he sat you down alongside his beloved son. 
That's grace. While we were dead in our trespasses, enslaved to our sin, ensnared in an ocean of wickedness, Paul says in Romans 5.21, that this is the other side of that argument that I had to edit to save some time. I talked about what we had in Adam. This is what we have in Christ in the second Adam. Grace abounded all the more as sin reigned in death. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that good news? As a pastor, Nathan Pickowitz says, God saw us struggling in our blood. And he said, live. Live. And he has removed our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. He has poured out grace upon grace through sending his son and is sending his precious son to die for our sins. God has caused us to die in Christ so that he could make us alive in Christ and raise us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly heavenlies with Christ. But God indeed. I hope you rest in that. I hope you have confidence and security in that. I do. Why did he do this? Why, why was there a but God in, 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 this, in this text? Why me? Why do I get to benefit from God's grace? Why you? Why did God respond to our deadness with his grace? Well, Paul tells us. As we look at the, at the future of our salvation, we, we see the purpose of God's grace revealed. Starting in verse 7, we, there are two reasons Paul gives us. The first is so that God can display his grace and his kindness towards his people. Look at verse 7. You see the so that? That's, a, that's an explanatory clause. That, uh, when you see a so that, it's answering a why. Why did God do this? So that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God saved you. So that he could be kind to you. It, it, it almost sounds redundant, but it's marvelous, isn't it? When I was young, I, I, re, I merely thought being saved meant I don't, I don't go to hell when I die. And for the most part, you know, nothing in the here and now, nothing really changes. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to find something to do because I'm kind of going to be there for a while. What infantile thinking. Because being made alive now, being raised now, being seated now is only the tip of the iceberg. And God is going to be showing me, and he's going to be showing you the surpassing riches of his kindness and grace towards you for a very, very long time. You could have all the excavators that, 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 that the that the cat facility in heaven has, and you will never dig to the bottom, you will never find the bottom of God's kindness and mercy and grace in heaven. Eternity with him will be 
wonderful. It will be good. It will be glorious. Imagine this. Bodies that don't die or age. No suffering, no pain, no hunger, no want, no lack. We will see Christ face to face. We will behold then the one who loves you perfectly and completely now. And we will also be reunited with loved ones who have been called to glory and preceded us. We will also meet the whole roster of saints who have walked this earth and for all eternity it will be joyous. And we will be reminded that all of this, all of it, and all the, all the things that we can't even yet fathom about heaven, it was all given to us because God wanted to be kind and gracious to dead sinners like us. Paul reminds us, this is because of God. It's not because of us. And that's grace. And we get to that familiar phrase, the familiar line, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man so that no one may boast. Being confirmed in the church, being baptized in the church, being a member of the church, having a stellar church attendance, giving lots and lots of money to the church, taking communion in the church, being a moral person, keeping the Ten Commandments, being a, being a good neighbor, living an upright moral life, does not get you right with God. It does not tip the scales of judgment in your favor. Only The only thing, the only thing that makes a difference is faith in the God-man who offered himself as a substitute for sins, for your sins, for my sins, and belief in him that leads to repentance and becoming his disciples, and it is that faith, it is that Faith that saves. And what Paul says here is even that faith that saves had to be gifted to you for you to be saved. Luther argued, if the soul was dead, then the will is dead. And a dead will cannot yield living, saving faith in the living God. In order for the dead soul to exercise that kind of Faith that saves, even that faith must be provided for him by an outside source. And God did that for the Christian. That's grace. That's grace. So he saved us so that he could be kind to us and show us his grace. He also saved us so that we can display the workmanship of God. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. No longer walking according to the power of the air, no longer walking according to the, uh, to the course of this world, or, or walking according to our enslaving lusts. We are walking in Christ and doing the good works that we were created to do because we're God's workmanship. Now, see, works do have a place in salvation. 
You and I were saved in order to do good works. They, they have nothing to do with getting us saved. They have everything to do with us being saved by God in, in that he has saved us so that we may do them. God recreates us. He makes us a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. It's gone right out that window. The new has come. And the new creation does new works, not dead works, but works that are, that are energized by God and that are energized by the spiritual gift that he gives every single believer. Every single Christian has gifts and abilities that makes them, that makes you unique and special each one different than the other. And that this was one of the great privileges that the Reformation rediscovered. It was the, the, the doctrine of vocation, of occupational calling, that God fashions people to fit and to function in specific ways in societies. And no matter how menial society or the church tells you that your job is, what you do can glorify God and edify your neighbor. At the time before the Reformation, the view was that the only way one glorified God, the only way that one had significance was if they were of the clergy. If you're a man, you better, be, uh, you better aim to be a, a bishop or, a, or, or a, a monk. If you're a woman... You better not get pregnant because that would that would disallow you to be a nun, and the nun is your only option to, to, to do anything of spiritual significance, which means you can't be a mom. If you were a cobbler, a ditch digger, a watchmaker, a stay-at-home mother, what you did really meant nothing in the grand scheme. It was kind of a gloomy time to live before the Reformation going into work day in, day out, working hard, working long days, working without recognition, working without appreciation, often working without compensation. And then the reformers found when they searched the scriptures that the Christian has good works to do and the Christian doesn't have to go off in, on some quest or some search to find these spiritual good works to do. Good works aren't rescuing cats from trees and, 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 and stopping robbers. Your good works are all around you and wherever you're employed. You glorify God by bringing to your occupation a spirit of excellence, a spirit of diligence, and a spirit of punctuality. I hear they like that too. If you're a mother or a father, you glorify God by giving yourself to your children and you raise them up in the Lord. and You, you disciple them and discipline them and train them and teach them right from wrong. What a grace to know that your life in Christ is given purpose and meaning and value in every single minuscule detail, even Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. It's fascinating to learn this week when John Calvin brought out this principle during the Reformation and he told, he told the, 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 the men of Geneva the cobblers, the ditch diggers, the street sweepers, that the work they did value, valued and they needed to glorify God what they did because all of their works in, in the last day would be brought before them and be reviewed. And the things that they fashioned with their hands would judge them. 
And the watchmakers took that very seriously. And there's a reason why even to this day, the best watches in the world are found where? You can Google that. That's legit. Calvinism influenced Swiss watches. This morning, I, I hope that you can see everything you have in Christ. Everything you have in Christ is given to you by grace. By grace. You were given life when you were dead. You were raised up and set free when you were walking in slavery. You were seated with the Son of God when you were a son of wrath. All by God's grace. And the faith that saved you by latching you on to Christ, the one thing that you desperately needed that your heart of stone could not produce, was provided for you as a gift. That's grace. Also that you could show the kindness, also that he could show you the kindness in this life and in the life to come. You are God's workmanship, his new creation in Christ Jesus, graced with divine purpose and graced with the, with the divine enable it, enablement to achieve it. That's grace. 